Hello, Culture Sniper listeners. We're a little out of the ordinary this week, but this week we have a short feature with visiting artist Holly Bass. She visited us last summer to teach choreography with the ensemble, and so I sat down with her to kind of unpack all her many different artistic disciplines. Enjoy. And so I created this strap-on derriere that comes in different you know, variations. There's a basketball one. There's mm-hmm. a golden one. There's a um, futuristic one that's bouncy. And just looking at it as the the sort of source of black femininity and mm-hmm. source of uh, black female strength. One art form just isn't enough for her. As a multidisciplinary artist, Holly Bass has created work using poetry, photography, and choreography while directing, writing, and performing her pieces. Holly's work is an exploration of gender and class and race through visual and performing art. So we had to speak with her on how she does it all. I'm a person who's very... You know, you learn in an improv theater, you should uh-huh. say yes and. Okay. And I kind of live my life that way. Okay. So um, the uh, director of the parade is a friend of mine. And, well, actually at the time we didn't know each other. He just said, you know, I'm meeting with artists and your name came up and okay. I want to talk to you. And, and he had this idea of a disco ball and he showed me some prototypes and I was like, that looks terrible. <laughs> I can make a better disco ball than that. Never having done it before. Okay. That's so amazing. it's also just a lot of like, I just guts. Guts. Yeah. Like, you mm-hmm. know, where I'm just like, oh, we can, we can definitely make a better disco ball. Mm-hmm. So I found like a, a two foot disco ball online or a okay. sphere. And I was like, well, we just have to make Replicate, it bigger, right. uh-huh. <laughs> which is a lot more complicated than it sounds. But I um, had a good friend at a space called Dance Place who was a technical director, and he was able to do the math and the vector diagrams, oh, wow. which I can't do at all. I'm more of a concept person. Okay. And then I collaborate with people who have these architectural and design skills. Got you. And honestly, when we made it, we glued 42 layers of styrofoam together wow. in the sphere shape. And the glue didn't dry. Oh, no. So it was like a day before the parade. So we just started sticking rods into it to secure <laughs> it. And then we covered it with a mylar, which we hand cut about 1,300 squares. So it was really like six people worked on this project to make this disco ball. That's crazy. But yeah, but it was so fun. And once we made it, uh-huh. it, was, it was so exciting. But so you're a producer as well. Yeah. You're, saying. you're a producer, director. Okay, you do everything. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I want to go uh, specifically into one of your pieces, or several actually, uh, that have a recurring theme of the the prosthetic derriere. Yes. Um, I mean, I kind of understand the Sarah Bartman kind of reference, but could you go a little bit further into why it is that that is a recurring theme? Why do you feel like that is something that needs to be highlighted? Sure. So uh, for folks who don't know, Sarah Bartman mm-hmm. was a South African woman who was persuaded slash kidnapped mm-hmm. and brought to Europe where she was put on display as really more of a circus sideshow. She was told, hey, you'll perform and you'll be rich. And then, you know, at the end of your contract, you'll go home and you'll never have to work again. Mm -hmm. And instead, she ended up going from, you know, bad situation to worse situation, eventually dying of alcoholism and other diseases. And then her body was kept in France. it was dissected and put on display and just this horrible treatment. So she, her remains weren't even brought back to South Africa until about 
I think 2006. So this long saga, mm -hmm. and I really feel like her story, you know, as a black woman, when I learned about Sarah Bartman's story, mm -hmm. it seemed to encapsulate so much of what so many black women have endured um, from many different countries, whether we're talking about black women in America being used for the early, um, you know, gynecological mm -hmm. experiments and, and Henrietta Lex cells being used without her permission. There's this way in which the black female body has contributed so much to art and history and medicine and culture, but in this way that's very much about being exploited, exploited mm -hmm. and extracted. So I wanted to take the sort of story of Sarah Bartman and in some ways pay homage to her as an artist. Oh. So not just looking at her as a feminist icon and not just looking at her as of an example of victimhood, but also the fact that she did sing and dance and was compelling in her own right. And so I created this strap-on derriere that comes in different you know, variations. There's a basketball one, there's mm -hmm. a golden one, there's a um, futuristic one that's bouncy. And just looking at it as the, the sort of source of black femininity and source mm -hmm. of uh, black female strength is coming from the hips and the booty and the backside. And so using that to tell different stories in different ways. Yeah. I see. I thought it was more on the hypersexuality portion and specifically addressing that in kind of a, a popular culture manner. But I, yeah, I'm glad I asked that question now because I got definitely more insight on that. And uh, were you going to... I was going to agree with you. Okay. So a couple of the pieces very specifically okay, are yeah. about hypersexuality. Okay. They're about, you know, this idea of Sarah Bartman was in the 1810s and then even in the 2010s and today, this obsession with the black female body mm -hmm. and video vixens. And so we have it, the same thing that was happening in the 1800s is happening now right. with hip hop culture right. and just that constant hypersexualizing. So I do explore that mm -hmm. very definitely. Yeah. Like, like, like how you just ex explained the current hip hop culture, how you see replications of that behavior from then till now. In terms of your work specifically and how we move forward, what do you think that artists can do in dance to help advance or progress from this kind of stage? So what's important to me is to allow the audience to question the status quo. So I try not to necessarily give an answer, hmm. but I want us to question things that become normalized. Okay. So, oh. you know, it's normal to go to YouTube and That's watch a music true. video That's and true. see a black woman in a bikini, not even by a pool. You're like, yeah. why are you in a parking lot in a bikini? That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we've decided that this is a normal thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's a video, it's in a mansion and everyone's wearing bikinis, but there's no pool. It's just a way to like, you know, again, hypersexualize the black women's bodies. So I also just want us to think about history. So how are we part of this? How are we contributing to what's happening in our culture? And that we're all responsible. So it's not about letting, blaming someone and letting mm -hmm. someone else off the hook. It's really about looking at how we're all complicit mm -hmm. and making choices. And also understanding that there's beauty in that black female body that's mm -hmm. on display. It's, it's alluring. That's why we're looking at mm -hmm. it. It's beautiful, but you can't, you can't, say I'm beautiful on the one hand and then take another black woman and
and go from you know getting a parking ticket to somehow she's in jail and then she's dead mm. so we're living in this culture where on the one hand where you know everyone wants to have a big booty now mm-hmm. you know white women want to have a big booty now but like nobody wants to actually be a black woman right everyone wants to have darker skin to an extent to an extent but they but don't want to really. actually you know so it's it's really just exploring those things in which desire and hatred, how they feed into each other mm-hmm. and all of our responsibility. It's like everyone wants the culture but doesn't want the experience. Exactly. Um, I think one thing that you hit on the nose, and I think it's really interesting, I'm starting to, starting to notice with a lot of different issues that we have um, with all of our societal things is that the complicit part may be the key. And I don't think I've, I've noticed that before. I always feel like if you kind of preach this is how we do it, or you kind of provide solutions, because for some reason I'm just a solution-oriented person. But it seems that the person who is, those who are not engaging in the behavior, the, the exploitive behavior, aren't the ones that we go to. It's the ones who allow that person to be exploitive. Um, so I want to go to one of your quotes that you had in your um, artist statement. And in your artist statement, you said, I seek to change our understanding of art's value and purpose in our society. So my question first is, what is the current value of art? Why do you want to change it? And then how do you see the the purpose kind of changing in the future? So value is Mm -hmm. always sort of in the eye of the beholder, Mm -hmm. or it's also, you could say, determined by the marketplace. Mm -hmm. For me, of course, art and culture has a very high value. But in the marketplace, I would make a lot more money doing advertising, which is something I I could have gone into, um, versus being a choreographer. So... For me, as an artist who's a full-time artist, I'm also a business owner, and I think about those things when I'm hiring young people, for instance, and paying them. So generally, um, when I hire teenagers, I pay them $15 an hour, which is much higher than the minimum wage, because I'm interested in how we talk about a living wage, mm-hmm. which is where we need to move toward. Mm. And same thing with my you know, professional artist collaborators. I've done shows for free, for nearly free, and I will continue to collaborate with people based on, you know, love of the art. Mm-hmm. But we all got to eat. We all got to pay our bills. Right. So how do we, as entrepreneurs, sort of establish a value for the artwork, talk about the value of it, mm-hmm. and then put that into practice? So there's organizations. Um, there's an organization called WAGE. And I can't remember the acronym right now. <laughs> but it's basically... Um, I think it's something like working artists in the greater economy. Okay. Wow. That was. <laughs> I think that's it. I could be <laughs> that wrong. Was like, this sounded spot on. Yeah. And okay. what they do is they set up a, a scale for galleries. So if your gallery only brings in, let's say, $30,000 a year, mm-hmm. this is how much you should pay artists, curators, performers. Mm-hmm. If you're in a museum and your budget is $50 million a year, mm-hmm. this is how much you should pay those same people. So there's this ironic thing, right? Like, even if you're in the arts, if, you're, if your toilet breaks, you're going to pay the plumber. You're mm-hmm. not going to be like, well, it's the arts, so can you just do it for free? <laughs> but, but and still, the people who are actually on the stage or in the gallery who are making the work that's bringing the people in yeah. often aren't getting paid. That's true. So it's like, how can you pay the electrician? How can you pay the plumber? How can you pay the ushers and everybody else right. but underpay the artist? Oh. That's, that's just wrong. 
So I'm curious because this is very essential in terms of young artists who are looking to get into the industry and knowing that, you know, that is a struggle with the finances. How then is it decided how an artist is paid, specifically when you're getting into a gallery or something like that? How do they decide that? There's there's no standard. Really? Which is, yeah, there's kind of none. Failure. There's no minimum wage. Ah, there's nothing. Interesting. Which is why organizations like Wage are, are so important. Okay. And then, so then now I as an artist... If I go to a gallery, I can say, are you wage certified? Oh. Why or why not? Would you be willing to use this payment scale mm-hmm. so that we can make sure everything is equitable? And so I can start, you know, sort of advocating for myself and others mm-hmm. because I have this tool. And I can do that not just in galleries, but in theater. So I generally, when I work for free, it's for a friend. Okay, right. <laughs> you know, like you're a fellow artist. I know if you had it, you would pay me more, but I'm not going to go to your school or your museum or, you know, your university and work for free because I can see online what the annual budget is for the university. Right, and you like, know that I could get paid Yeah, more. so, but it's also, you know, up to me to know how to negotiate for myself and mm. advocate for myself right. because otherwise people are going to pay me whatever they think is right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't you don't give the first rate. Generally, they, they give me give a rate, the, uh, and then I either accept it or negotiate. Sometimes, so people will say, okay. "We want you to bring this specific performance that you did. Okay. How much does it cost?" And then I I, I give can, a budget. Okay, and I try to give. You know, ideally, you want to give a high enough budget so that they want to haggle with you. Right, 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 right. right <laughs> so right, that right. idea that like if they say yes right away, that meant that means you undercharged. And I'm still learning these things. It's not something that comes naturally to me and but I it's important that I be this advocate so that my artistic career is sustainable now is Wade sounds like something similar to like a union is that it like you get a membership exactly you get certified so in the same way like organic or fair trade and you get that stamp of approval on your product Uh you can get a wage certified stamp that you can put on your website and then you're part of this list that's online it's very transparent Mm -hmm. so they want to make it so they can say like all of these folks have joined us why haven't you Uh and also for artists to say the same to you know performance spaces why haven't you joined this sort of organization this association yeah absolutely i think it's really important to kind of understand the balance between doing something for the love of it and understanding that you still have to live at the same time so like the the kind of artist struggle thing is very kind of real where they have to you know either find some kind of side job to do that work on the side and then finance their work um so my next question for you is with that kind of in mind what advice would you give to those who are up and coming that have to deal with being an artist and going through that phase, whatever phase that is that they're going through in terms of being able to feed themselves, but also engaging in work that they love and then also still getting paid for that. Absolutely. I think, you know, most artists work multiple jobs, mm-hmm. even when you're a full-time artist. You're, so right. you're teaching dance, you're teaching yoga, you're, you know, choreographing work, and then maybe you've got some other side hustle, like you design websites, mm-hmm. or you, you know, photograph people. Right. Or, so sense. it's still artistic, mm-hmm. but it's, it's also very much so about side hustles. So I think the first advice I would give is figure out what kind of um, worker you are. Like, are you someone who's very entrepreneurial and you can piece together three or four side jobs 
and also make your artwork? Mm -hmm. Or are you someone who's better with structure? Mm -hmm. You really should have a day job. Mm -hmm. And then you make art on the weekends and the evenings. Or you get a day job that has a little more flexibility or is part-time. So it covers your basic bills, but then you have the free time to pursue your artwork. So that's a really crucial thing. Not everybody is meant to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so it's really good to know that That's as true. soon as possible. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And I like if it makes you more stressed out, yeah. then you're not going to be making art. Yeah. So just figure out what is the least stressful thing to support yourself and support your artistry. You got to kind of put the right pieces around it so that you know that you, you get the key thing done, which is the art, and then kind of put the pieces around it that fit best, whether that be working for someone else or however that works. Going back to the multidisciplinary thing, I feel like that ties in really nicely with what we were just discussing um, about how you said having multiple trades. I feel like if you were kind of like a photographer and a video or a videographer and a dancer or a choreographer, like those also could be avenues for you to kind of delve into. And I feel like that would be kind of a great like way to kind of still be within the same realm of your work, but then at the same time kind of get, you know, finance yourself and, and do what you need to do. Uh, I feel like that also might be an interesting kind of tip to... Yeah, yeah I, I totally uh -huh. agree with that, Carrie. I think the thing that a lot of times we get caught up on the idea of who's on stage mm. and like that's that's art, like the person on stage, so the, the dancer or the rapper. But, you know, if you're looking at music, the music producer, yeah. the person who makes the beats, Managers. the person who mixes the sound, like there's so many jobs. So same thing with, you know, maybe you love theater and dance, but you don't want to be on stage, but you might make a great stage manager. Mm -hmm. You might make a great director, a producer. So there's so many avenues and that it's all part of the arts. And I, I try to express you know, that to, especially to younger people to be like, don't give up on the arts because people are telling you you're going to be starving right. artists. Mm -mm. And, and I think that's one thing that's important because for me specifically growing up, knowing I, I, like, I love music so much, but I'm always thinking, oh, I have to be a performer. And what I've kind of learned in the last few years is like there's so much around the music than just performing. And so that's something I wish I kind of knew a little bit earlier. But I think it's important to understand that you can love something so much and then not have to be the one that's always, you know, in the lights. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Culture Cipher podcast by Heritage Works. This activity is supported in part by the McGregor Fund, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support is provided by the Kresge Foundation and the Fred and Barbara Erb Family Foundation. To learn more about Heritage Works and the work we do in the community, visit heritageworks.org.